Hi, welcome to Anton Knows. This is episode 114. Uh, today we're going to talk about Rod Serling. There's this great new graphic novel just came out this year. It's called Twilight Man. It's by Colin Chalene. I, I probably messed up that name. The full title of the book is called Twilight Man, Rod Serling, and the Birth of Television. This is a biography through television. I'll start off with that wonderful narration that Rod Serling, I'll try to do my best. There is a fifth dimension beyond which is known to man. That dimension of vast between space and timelessness and infinity. It's the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This dimension is the dimension of the imagination. It is called the Twilight Zone. Now, that narration was used throughout Twilight Zone's run, but also, uh, didn't, I don't think they used it in the last season, which they made the Twilight Zone an hour. I'll, I'll talk about my thoughts about Twilight Zone in a, a few minutes. Let's just talk about the graphic novel first. So the graphic novel is sort of like a Twilight Zone story. Uh, you can tell a lot more interesting things in a graphic novel than you can in a lot of other works of literature. No saying that books aren't good. Books are wonderful, too. That wants the imagination in your mind. But this also writes the imagination. You see it visually, and you see it uh, in the writing. So, Russ Sterling is on an airplane, and he was an aviating nut. He loved uh, everything about airplanes and about space travel, and he, he studied a lot of those ideas. So, he's sitting on an airplane with this young woman, this mysterious woman, and uh, th this was the 1950s and 60s, so there was a lot of smoking, a lot of drinking. And so she starts ta asking him about questions about his life, and he starts talking about his life. So he was a paratrooper in World War II. If you didn't know a lot about Rod Serling, you, you should know he's a very fascinating man, a wonderful writer. He was a uh, paratrooper during World War II, and he paratroopered into the Pacific, and he survived all these horrors of war. He got shot at by the Japanese soldiers. He was uh, a friend of his, his friends, all, a lot of them were killed while he was in the Pacific. He eventually parachuted into Japan after the atomic bomb was dropped. He was uh, went around there, saw the ruins of what was left in Japan during the fire bombings and so forth, baseball stadiums, he influenced a lot of his writing for uh, Twilight Zone. And he suffered from shell shock in those days. That's what they called it. Now we call it PTSD. And uh, soldiers, you like, they'll, they'll start to freak out, and they don't know why. Uh, he, in the graphic novel, he, in the middle of the restaurant, he just starts freaking out, and he doesn't... He says, oh, this is... The Japs are coming, that kind of thing. And his friend, his friend says, what's wrong? What's wrong? And uh, eventually he wrote for a radio. And uh, he found that this anthology 
Uh, uh, an anthology series, if you don't know, is basically when you take, you write one story with the same characters and you just use them for that one story. You never uh, use them again. Maybe you might, but most of the time you just use these characters and they have a beginning, a middle, and end. Sort of like a play or a, a short story. And he found he was very good at that. But then he uh, began to uh, write for Playhouse 90. And that lasted from the 50s and 60s, from 1956 to 1960. And he was very good at that. He wrote, uh, but he wanted to write realistic stories. And uh, he tried to be a boxer for a while, and that didn't work out. Uh, he was just too small, you know. And he felt that that's what it was like his struggle was. He was a boxer who was struggling against television, and television won. He would always say, you know, here I am trying to write something very serious about the Holocaust or about the struggles of a boxer or the struggles of a, another man. And they didn't want to hear it. And he says, why do we have to write a play where there's – and they have, you have to cut in the middle of my story to go have a bunch of cartoon rabbits sell aspirin. He, he couldn't stand it. It was driving him crazy. So he eventually uh, left for a while. He wrote a few movies here and there. That's a movie called Patterns. He wrote a few other things. He was very successful, but they thought he was too controversial. So he met his wife, and his wife was his toughest critic, but she was also the best advocate he ever had. And his wife basically kept his legacy alive long after he passed away. So she, uh, she was the one who impressed him. You should take this idea, that Twilight Zone idea, you should take it and press it and, and give it to CBS. So he, he dug the script out, he sent it to them, and they filed it away. Now, these two people, Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball, seem to pop up in television history a lot. Lucille Ball gave us Star Trek. She gave us Mission Impossible. And Desi Arnaz gave us Twilight Zone. How? That's easy. He went to the, he had a lot of pull in Hollywood in those days, and, and he went to the executives and said, look... Why are you afraid of your own shadow? Why do you think this guy's too controversial? Hire him. He's good. He's a good writer. This idea, Twilight Zone, is a great idea. So if you ever see the pilot, if you ever get the DVD set, the first one does not have Rod Serling's narration to introduce it. It actually has Desi Arnaz introduce it. And he says, we've got this new show. It's called Twilight Zone. It's an anthology series. And... We want, uh, we want everybody to enjoy it. So the first episode called Where Is Everybody uh, comes out like that. As for the narrator, they really wanted Orson Welles, but they couldn't afford him, and he was living in Europe, and he was too expensive. So they said, well, what about Rod Serling? He, he's, a good, he's, he's a pretty good little actor. He's, he's, pretty good. He, he's got that demeanor. Uh, let's try him out. So they put him on camera, and... He was perfect for the narrator. So he's the writer and the narrator. He wrote several main episodes, uh, Time Enough at Last, and uh, Where Is Everybody, and uh, 
many of the monsters you do in the mind of Mulberry Street, all these really, really famous stories. And he they they liked the idea and they ran it on, on CBS. And then several people, many famous people wanted to be because it was a quality show and they all wanted to be a part of it. Uh, Burgess Meredith, he was in like four or five episodes of The Twilight Zone. Jack Clubman was in uh, probably one of the most scary episodes of The Twilight Zone called Death Ship. He was in several episodes and where he played a uh, pool hustler. Buster Keaton, yeah, the famous comedian, he was he was there. Carol Burnett, yes, the famous comedian. She's in an episode of The Twilight Zone where uh, it's about a, a bus driver. Uh, Judy Newmar, William Shatner... Robert Redford, one of his first roles in a, in a big screen uh, on television. George Takei went on to be on Star Trek with William Shatner. Don Rickles, the famous comedian who was in dozens and dozens of uh, things, you know, went on to be in Toy Story and everything. Dennis Hopper, another famous actor. John Astin, who was in dozens of episodes of Twilight Zone, who was... Uh, Gomez Adams and dozens and dozens of other uh, things. So it ran from October 1959 to uh, 1964. Uh, I know, not included in the graphic novel, but he they talk a little bit about it. They sort of Twilight Zone ended with a thud. In the graphic novel, they show him uh, standing next to a... Uh, like a cemetery grave that they built for Twilight Zone, like a, a headstone, saying Twilight Zone, your lies, Twilight Zone. And uh, the other aspect was this. CBS went to him and said, why don't you change the show and make it more about ghosts and monsters and, and werewolves and things? And Rod Serling said, no, I don't think I want to do that. They're the ones who pressed him to make it an hour. He didn't want to do that. But after a while, he had nothing to do with the writing. Of zone, he was just a narrator, and uh, he didn't like a lot of what they were doing, but they, they just said that they, they wanted to do this. The other thing was it never really achieved the ratings that they were hoping it would achieve, but anthology series rarely don't do that. Now they they'll do because if uh, they're on streaming like Black Mirror and all these other series, and even brought back Twilight Zone for that. But they were never real. Uh, they were never real hit. You know, it was a, people would kids would sneak out of bed. They said in the graphic novel to watch it. It got better and became a cult hit in reruns, especially late night TV. I know many a time that we would I would stay up late, watch Twilight Zone, watch Star Trek. And uh, especially episodes I hadn't seen. Or stay up and have this marathon they used to run on Channel 11 during, uh, like, holiday time. During uh, the uh, 4th of July or during the uh, uh, New Year's. Sometimes they'd show the uh, Honeymooners. Sometimes they'd show Twilight Zone. So it was good. So it never really achieved. So he didn't want to change it to make it about werewolves and monsters. He said... Let it just end, and that's the end of it. So Serling went to Hollywood and tried to write screenplays for them. He, he did that for a while, and probably the most uh, contributing thing that he ever wrote was 
for uh, Planet of the Apes. He read Bull's novel, and I've talked about this on one of the other podcasts. You can go to that episode where I talk exclusively about all five of the movies. And his contributing is this. He was more um, realized that this is, uh, he could use this just like he did with Twilight Zone, a platform to talk about uh, social and ideas in science fiction. So in his story, it's about a guy named Thomas who goes to a distant uh, planet, and he does go to a distant planet, and the planet of the apes are a giant, uh, a technologically achieved world. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, shout out to Rosalia, and she, she says, he wrote Planet of the Apes, the screenplay for that? And I said, the ending. And she went, oh, yeah, the ending. And I said, yep. That ending is probably the most surprise ending anyone's ever done for a movie. Look what we've done here. And even the producer, they just liked the ending. They said that. So Paul Dane wrote part of it, and he wrote part of it. But you can tell which ones are Serling's story ideas and which one is um, him. So they couldn't do the technologically advanced civilization, if you know anything about Planet of the Apes, because uh, 20th Century Fox was going through a big financial problem at that time. They made this giant movie called Cleopatra, and they couldn't um, do that. They would have to design all these different cars and make a city and all that stuff. So they made it like a horse and wagon society. And that worked fine. But Serling didn't like it. He visited the set. You see in the graphic novel, him visiting, there's all these pictures of him talking to all the actors and talking to uh, Charlton Heston and stuff. He went to see the movie. The movie was a big success and was highly acclaimed for using science fiction. He did have a hand in writing one of the sequels that they tried. He called it Planet of Men, but they used part of his idea and part of Paul Dane's idea, and that became Beneath the Planet of the Apes. All right. So Serling um, works uh, really, really uh, hard. He he still uh, worked in Hollywood for many years. He went to a a college and became uh, a writer in college, uh, a, uh, a professor in college, and he loved doing that, uh, and it, it was in, uh, in New York, and he said that he felt like he was like a Greek philosopher, and all these kids would sit around him at a rock, and they would talk about screenwriting, and he was very uh, good at it. He did a show called Night Gallery, but as they said, that what they did was they gave him a giant check and said, here, here you go. And uh, he was just a narrator. I think he wrote a few episodes here and there, and that ran from December 16th from 1970 to 1973, okay? And he just worked at it as the narrator because they did. He became a pitch man. You saw him on Laughing. You saw him on uh, uh, pitching cigarettes, beer, insect repellent, you name it. Because he wanted, he liked being on camera and he needed the job and he needed the money. He had a daughter to support. He had a family to support. He, he just needed it. He had a lot of heart problems. That was his main gist. He was a chain smoker. 
Now, I'll go into a little bit of spoiler territory here that I didn't include in my notes. When you read the article in the paper, you'll, you won't see a spoiler. So if you're listening now and you don't want to hear the ending, then um, you could come back to this. So, just like in the Twilight Zone story, this mysterious woman that Sterling is talking to speaks, uh, speaks to him, and he realizes that he was out one day mowing his lawn, and he had a heart attack. His wife rushed him to the hospital and put him uh, you know, in an ambulance and took him to the hospital, and they, the doctor said he has to have the surgery or he's going to die. And it doesn't look good. He died on the operating table. So he, he realizes that this plane is headed towards his final destination. And he said, what is this place? I'm dead. Where, where is this place? He says, don't worry, Mr. Sterling. Relax. We'll get to your final destination eventually. That's how the graphic novel ends. There's a lot of statement about how the world has changed and how we're sort of like living in a Twilight Zone episode in many ways. And I would say, yeah. Uh, the legacy of Twilight Zone is a, a, a long and lengthy process. Twilight Zone was done in the 60s and, and 50s, brought back in the 1980s, had a nice run in the 1980s, was very well-received there. Then it got sold into syndication for a while. After that, uh, it came back in like the early 2000s to try to do that for like or the early 90s trying to do for um, uh, on UPN of all things but and with uh, hosted by Forrest Whitaker but nobody but nobody remembers those episodes because it was on UPN and that that network really couldn't find a hit it was very controversial and it was kind of weird and then they tried again uh, around around when COVID was going on, when the new Twilight Zone, I would say the legacy of that now is this other series, because he even said, I was inspired by the Twilight Zone, was the creator of this series called Black Mirror, which is very controversial. They could never get away with what they're doing on that show now. But it's sort of weird and strange and and has these like terrible uh, twists sometimes, just like Twilight Zone. Uh, does one day I'll go through all the episodes, and we'll talk about the best and the greatest and so forth, and we'll talk about how wonderful it is. Should you read this graphic? Absolutely, go for it now and order it right now and add it to your big growing graphic novel collection. It's written well, the art is good, the story is good. A lot of people complain to me about comics and say, comic books just cover superheroes. Comic books just cover science fiction. No, they don't. They're an art form unto themselves. The fella that uh, marched with Martin Luther King, he said he wanted to write a book for kids. And this fella was an artist or a friend of his. He said to him, don't write a, uh, that. Write a graphic novel. So he wrote about the civil rights movement through a graphic novel. So you can write a biography. A kid will probably pick up a graphic novel quicker than they would pick up a regular book. Not to say regular books are bad, as I said before, but if they get interested in that, maybe they'll want to read more. And is there anything wrong with that? Stomp out illiteracy through that? That sounds good to me. 
All right? I'll see you again on another Anto Knows.